Hello and welcome to the third episode of Close to My Art. This podcast is designed to offer creative ideas and guidance for other creatives who are trying to navigate their way through the industry, which can be pretty difficult to navigate even at the best of times. Over the years, I've crossed paths with a number of creatives at various different points in my life and various different places around the world. And they've helped to offer me inspiration and guidance along my own creative journey. Some of those conversations have been some of the most important conversations that I've ever had for both my life and my journey as a creative. For that reason, I wanted to share those conversations with as many people as possible. My guest today is Mickey Dale, multi-instrumentalist, producer and band member of British band Embrace. Mickey works with a range of up-and-coming talent in the Yorkshire area, producing their records from his self-run studio, The Cellar of Dreams. With experience and successes both on the stage and in the studio, Mickey is the perfect person to offer a thorough insight into the industry. Five, four, three, two, one. Cool, so shall I just jump straight in? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So um, could you just explain a little bit about what your role as a producer on a day-to-day basis involves? Yeah, sure. Um... I suppose it comes down to two two different roles. One of them is like very much like, you know, I'm an engineer producer. Um, so most of the bands that I work with, I record them here in my own studio, the Cellar of Dreams in Bradford. So there's a, a very sort of audio technical role of miking the drums and trying to make sure that everything sounds really sweet. Um, uh, getting tones, but then the production part is very much about getting the best out of the song and getting... Um, the best out of each performer as well so um and that's that really does start with the song um i'm a big believer in the old school production thing of like you know how can we improve this song and it's usually i'll ask myself three key questions when i'm working with a band um is it at the right tempo like if we speed it up or slow it down even just slightly does it feel better do you get more of a connection with the song is it in the right key? That is probably the most important thing because if you've spent two days making something sound like a hit record and then you realise that when the singer goes in to sing it, <laughs> it's not in the right key. It's happened. It's happened so more times than I care to admit and it's one of the most <laughs> truly demoralising things that mm-hmm. can ever happen in the studio. And then the other thing is just structure. The, the structure of a song is like, what well, God, we've been doing this for a minute and we haven't heard a word of singing yet. You know, that those kind of nuts and bolts things, if you get those three components right, and I, and I firmly stand by that method of working, then you can run free through the, through the hills of audio production mm-hmm. and just have such a good time kind of exploring. That for, for me as well, like one of the, one of the things that I love to do, um, not just for the band, but for for me as well. It's like I, I love it when they go away having done something that they feel is beyond what they thought they could do. Mm-hmm. Like they've played beyond their own ability, and and the song is better than they even imagined it. That is, uh, yeah, that's the greatest feeling in the world, really. Uh huh. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, when when did you you first get into producing, and and how did you how did you come across it? What was yeah, the first time you did it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think my first real connection with it was just listening to records, you know, listening to the Beatles records and sort of uh, being fascinated with, you know, when the when the Beatles got really interesting from sort of 1966 onwards, revolver right through to the mm. end. Um, you know, George Martin was a genius and, uh, you know, things like I Am the Walrus and, you know, Happiness is a Warm Gun on the White Album. 
uh, just blew my mind. And also, you know, the sort of Phil Spector big wall of sound thing. I just sort of like, how on earth do you make something sound so emotive and powerful mm -hmm. in mono? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was in a band when I left school and we were doing work at a studio in Leeds called Patch Bay Studios, which was in the little sort of town of Farsley. Um, and it was an amazing studio, and we worked with a producer there called Dave Crefield, who, who went on to produce the first Embrace album. Okay. Um, a lovely guy, and, and he was a bit of a George Martin character. He would have, like, really crazy ideas, like uh, my band Poppy Factory back then had got a song called Seven Times Seven, and Dave had said, you know, what is the song about? And we said, well, it's a bit of a kitchen sink drama, you know, think Albert Finney, you know, black and white, British, gritty kind of uh, films mm -hmm. about real life. And and he really ran with that kitchen sink idea. And, and the song had got like a drum machine playing this quirky little rhythm throughout the song. And Dave's idea was that, right, Mickey, go in the kitchen. I'm going to set up a pair of microphones and I want you to just do things. I will call them out. So he's like, okay. Slam the drawer, slam the drawer shut, um, put the toaster on, scrape two bits of toast together, the sound of a ring pull, and we gave him all these different sounds, kick the pedal bane and all this stuff, mm -hmm. and then uh, the, the kettle boiling, just random kitchen sounds, and Dave took little samples of these and put them into the sequencer, which back in 1990 was like pretty hardcore revolutionary uh -huh. thing to do. <laughs> and so he'd taken this kitchen sound... Um, and built the rhythm track. It was the same pattern that the drum machine was playing. And so, yeah, I was really lucky that I worked with Dave. Sadly, that studio, Patch Bay, um, it, it, they, it was a brand new studio and they bought all the toys and they were just so financially stretched that um, probably two years after it opened, it closed. But this beast, the old Allen and Heath Sigma mixing desk, mm -hmm. um, the band I was in, Poppy Factory, we just signed a, a publishing contract with Polygram Music um, and we decided to use the money from from the publishing deal to buy the gear from the studio because okay. it went to a liquidation sale. Wow! Okay. And we we bought everything for sixteen grand. That's amazing. Um, oh. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And, and then, then Paul and I had just moved into this house in Bradford. Um, and one of the things that attracted us to this house was the cellar. We thought, oh, get a yeah. decent studio in there. And uh, so it's your idea from the beginning to have a, a studio down here. Yeah, and then like then five six years later. Um, um, I, I met Embrace and started working with Embrace and then they signed a big record deal with Virgin Records or a little subsidiary of Virgin Records called Hut Recordings. Um, and I was still kind of doing my own thing, but I was their sort of session keyboard player slash string arranger. And then the uh, first album came out, was number one, did really well. We did a lot of touring, went to Japan, Germany, all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then they asked me to become their full-time guy. Um, and in that time... Um, yeah, we've we've done all sorts of amazing stuff, touring. We've worked in some of the best studios with the best producers. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I've always been fascinated by the technical, you know, I love playing keyboards, but I'm very much kind of watching what's going on in these big studios and how people tackle certain things. And uh, yeah, just watching and learning really and asking questions without trying to annoy people. <laughs> <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's super important though asking questions. Um, you mentioned David Crefield, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you mentioned his techniques. Do you ever employ some of his techniques to your own work? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a magpie. If somebody's got a good idea, I'll steal it for yeah. sure. Yeah, well, you yeah, know that's yeah. what we do, isn't it? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. you youth um who who embraced had done a couple of albums with. He was a brilliant, brilliant producer and his career is is far and wide. He's made records with Primal Scream, Charlatans, Paul McCartney, Crowded House, you know. Wow. Um uh I mean that's just the tip of the iceberg. He's done so much. He plays bass in a band called Killing Joke. When he was about 15, he did a gig playing the bass with Sex Pistols. Wow. Um, wow. And he's a lovely guy. He's a proper free spirit and uh, and loves to push people out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. You, you approach a piano with your headphones on thinking, I know what this man wants me to do and I'm going to do it. And then you you four bars in and the button goes down on the talk back. It goes, no, no. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing the thing I thought you wanted me to do, youth. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and then you go through this agonising process. Mm-hmm. Um, and he loves that because you're right out of your comfort zone. But then when you go in and you finally figured it out together, what the part should be, which in youth terms is just just play much, much less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, less. <laughs> less pedal, less chords. Oh. And then he's like, less fingers. <laughs> he's like a £50,000 piano just kind of with two fingers going... Bong! Every time there's a chord change, and then the mic goes down. Sounds amazing. <laughs> you think, right? That's that's the that sounds like that, a real character. That's what the plan is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, an absolute wild man. Um, <laughs> and he built a studio in Spain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Embrace went and did an album out there. In fact, we arrive at that studio without any songs. Okay, it's the most bold thing we'd ever done as a band. You know, a band who were kind of all about the craft of songwriting. And you managed to to get a record out of it yeah he just liberated us well he'd done an album with Embrace where the last two songs on that album we just he said oh I'm getting a bit fed up with all these songs that are pre-written and we just kind of ship you know we make them ship shape we cut them down and we reimagine them he said like what if we all just plug in and see what happens so we all had dinner and um, some bottles of wine and he lit some candles and rolled a couple of joints (laughs) (laughs) and then we just kind of started jamming um and and that is really kind of out of your comfort zone for a band who don't usually just plug in and do that embrace is a a band which very much operates with people bringing in solid song ideas and then saying right this is as far as i've got it and now it needs the band to kind of kind of flesh it out and yeah. make it sound like embrace so <clears throat> yeah youth youth loved that he he would just stand at the other side of the studio glass and dance around waving his arms and being very very encouraging mm mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, just amazing. So yeah, he says, "Come on, get let's get out to Spain. Your album's number one. Everybody loves you. You, you know your confidence should currently be at an all time high." And I found some footage recently of us out in his studio in Spain, and it's just incredible. Yeah. Like you know, we you start with nothing. He'll play you a record and go, kind of like this drum beat, and then he put on another record that's completely different feel and genre. He goes like. What are these chords? I mean, my my job to sort of like listen. I've I've got perfect pitch, so I can listen to a record and just scribble out what the what the patterns are, mm-hmm. chord sequences and stuff. Um, and then we just sort of like, okay, right, well, let's get a coffee and go and plug in and glass everywhere. You can see the mountains, wow. Spanish mountains. And then like two hours later, you got a song. It's like, right, let's have a cup of tea and then we'll we'll do another and. Uh, we went there for two weeks and had like about 30 songs. Wow. So and just, 10 of them went on to our fifth album, which is called This New Day. And that was another number one album. Wow. So he's obviously very good at bringing out the best in people, which I guess is what your role is as a producer, isn't it? Yeah. It's just um, bringing out the ideas that people already have, isn't it? Yeah, that uh-huh. is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It's coaxing the best out of people and creating an environment where you can convince them to 
um, do things which they might think, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I'm going to look stupid or I'm going to sound stupid. Mm -hmm. And my argument with that is, yeah, it might be the worst suggestion I've ever made and it might sound horrible, but there is only me and you here. Mm -hmm. And if you do it and it's got absolutely no mileage in it whatsoever, you can watch me delete it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've got a feeling that you will like something about it and we can pursue it for half an hour and see where it goes. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, those are the magical things happening. I I don't like to make records in a day anymore because I can get a band in and we can make a, we can make a pretty decent recording in a day. Yeah. But, much of that day will be spent getting the drums sounding amazing and then looking for the perfect drum performance and then putting the bass on and the same will happen and then we'll get the guitars done. And and doing it all in a day doesn't leave time to explore all the all the stuff that happens beyond day one where it's just like somebody will go, what's this keyboard and what does that do? It's just like plug it in and try, see, yeah. what, see what happens. And that's, that's where people generally go away thinking, wow, we made a great record rather than just a good recording, you mm-hmm. know, so... Yeah. Okay. Well, obviously, um, obviously, the projects that you take on as well take up a lot of your time. So you must have to be quite selective with what you use your time for. Are there any specific qualities that you look for in the bands and artists that you agree to work with? Yes. Um, songs. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing worse than uh, recording a room full of technically amazing musicians and then two hours into the session you think oh, God, there isn't really much of a song. Okay. There's nothing that's really firing me up. You know, I don't feel passionate about what we're doing today. So I would always rather record a band who can barely play that have got an amazing song because I know we'll get something that people can... The songs are the currency in this business, aren't they? In the world of music, that's really all that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest of it is just window dressing, I think. So Mm -hmm. I'm very much drawn towards great songs. Um... And just spend, I, you know, I love working with people. Otherwise, I would just come down here every day and just make, I'd be on my 15th solo album by now. <laughs> I can't think of anything more horrible than me sitting down here on my own every day for months <laughs> on end. I actually, I love the process of uh, bouncing ideas around a room full of people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what makes me uh, excited. You know, that's why I've always been in bands. It's just that um, camaraderie and team teamsmanship, if that's a word. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that whole brilliant. process, I adore it. And you do a lot of work with up-and-coming artists, especially in this area, and obviously that's super beneficial for them, being able to get their name heard. Would you say that working with and nurturing local talent is important to you as somebody with the skills to bring an artist's ideas together and push them in the right direction? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, like, you know, if I had a much bigger studio facility, then, um, you know, I might have uh, bands with more experience and bigger budgets coming in. But this works fantastically for me uh, because I can I can sort of fit those projects in and amongst working, doing Embrace stuff and my other uh, projects where I'm, you know, I'm not just producer, I'm writer and performer. Um, but the thing is as well is, you know, we all learn from each other. Uh, it's not like people come here because I've got all the answers. Uh, every every day is different. Every band is different. Every record is different. There's always a, there's always a new challenge. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and that's kind of what keeps it exciting. Exciting, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it is really hard, you know, like the number of times I've gone in there, you know, trying to figure out why the drums just don't sound right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a performance thing 
Um, or if sometimes I just have to go in there and retune the drums because mm-hmm. I can can imagine how it should sound in my head and what's coming out of the speakers is so far away from that and I'm trying to try to fathom out what I can do to realize you know mm-hmm. the sonic dream <laughs> yeah so it, it never really gets super easy the, the no occasionally you you'll get one of those records where you think oh my god that record actually just made it itself <laughs> oh, I, I just kind of put some positive vibes into the room and it did you know pressed record but, uh-huh. that's brilliant um, so yeah yeah um, I was just looking then to make sure I had pressed record because <laughs> I was doing I was doing something the other day you know recording MIDI which is terrible because you hear MIDI even when it's not recording and I thought that's the one that's the strings yeah and then I was sort of feeling quite pleased with myself I looked at the screen and thought oh, no. oh I didn't actually record that. Oh, man. Anyway. Well, I think it's reassuring for, for people to know that are aspiring producers that even the experts can oh, get it wrong from time honestly, to time. Yeah, we've all done it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've actually... I don't know what happens in Pro Tools sometimes. There is there is a... You know when you do, you know shortcuts and you sort of like... You, you just yeah, get very... Yeah. Your fingers are very fluid. There's been a couple of times where somebody has performed something brilliant and I've pressed a button and watched it vanish off the screen. The audio file has just gone into the ether. No. So I've kind of, you know, Apple Z, well, that hasn't brought it back either. And I've tried various things. I thought, well, I'll just quit the session and open the session file back up and it will be there. No, it's just literally, I have nuked it. There must be a shortcut on Pro Tools, which means remove it from all existence like like the performance never took place. And I don't know what that is. I keep meaning to ask people. Um, yeah. it's, it's highly frightening. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, it's never been a client big enough where I've been sacked off the job. You know, yeah, I, I mean, haven't yet worked with Diana Ross. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least it's not happened with a full record as well. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I, have, I once I once did see a session where, um, in fact, I'll be honest, it was me back in the days of recording to tape. Mm-hmm. Sixteen tracks. 16-track tape machine, recorded the most brilliant performance of a band, yeah. and there was just one little bass mistake in the intro. So it was like, guys, guys, it's amazing, come and have a listen. And they listened, it was like, wow, wow, wow. So it was like, right, we're just going to punch in and redo that bass part. Yeah. Just the intro, then I'll punch you out. And I forgot to take all the other tracks out of record. Oh. And so I... Re-recorded right, you ready? It. Your bass is in tune? You're good to oh. go? Press record, it's like... Can't hear a song. So, like, oh, that's strange, isn't it? And Man. then I looked, and it dawned on me. And it's just like, oh, thank the Lord over it. for computers, where you just go undo. Oh. Yeah, it was gone. It was Man, gone. That's yeah. heartbreaking. Ruined. That Ruined. really is heartbreaking. Yeah. In actual fact, we we re-recorded just the intro full band and spliced the tape. We cut the tape to join okay. the intro to the rest of the song because there was t- there was tension in the room I, I thought something was going to hurt me physically <laughs> like, like I was just, just, just like destroyed a million pounds or something oh that's the thing isn't it like great takes a few and far between they sometimes are, yeah it? the magic comes you know mm-hmm. that's why we do sometimes I'll, I'm recording a band and we might do 15 takes of that song and each time we'll just be like just try a different drum fill coming out of that middle eight into the last chorus. Just simplify the bass part there. And everybody's got like think different different things to try. And then hopefully we sort of listen to it and think, well, that isn't the killer performance, but that's everybody playing the right part. So mm-hmm. let's get another bunch of takes. And then you, you just feel it in the room when it's just like, you know, you get, you've got everybody on the same page as uh-huh. you, all striving for the same thing. 
energy, focus, just that magical whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. that makes a great record. Um, yeah. And then hopefully we can just fix a few bits. I've, I used to make records where I would look for that killer performance and then do that horrible thing of just tightening everything up to the point of uh, t- t- about it. sounding like Foo Fighters. <laughs> <laughs> it's too perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm all about, um, because you might listen to a drum performance and think, yeah, it's a bit wobbly here and there, isn't it? Does, you don't need to see that as a negative because by the time you've put the bass on and then you put the guitars on, it just all comes together as a big, beautiful whole, a unique whole, mm-hmm. uh, and the imperfections are... Um, Danny from Embrace once said to me, you know, there's no such thing as perfection in music, and he's absolutely right. It's often the little flaws that that make a record stand out, mm-hmm. a certain breath in a certain place, or just a slightly delayed snare that creates a, a, a magical moment. So, uh, and God, if you listen to the Rolling Stones, I mean, like, they could barely play, really, in, <laughs> in a technical sense, but they just made this righteous, big, mm-hmm. soulful noise. It's what gives it character, isn't it? I mean, I'm, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the early Bon Iver records and, and like, I, I, the other day I was trying to play along with one of the songs and the, the guitar's, like, completely out of tune, but right, it, right. it just, it, it sounds beautiful exactly. at the same time. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, but I, yeah, I love Bonifair for all of those things, and and I love Twenty to a Million as well because it felt like the the reinvention of folk music, you know, yeah. like folk meets sort of outer space um, experimental electronica. It's just uh, it's mind blowing. It's unbelievable. God. Yeah, and uh, I had tickets to go see him, and then uh, COVID came along, and uh, at first fact, direct, yeah, same year. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that, that last year I must have had like uh, fifteen gig tickets. That was really excited. I was going to go see Black Country New Road, and uh, they're another great band as well. Yeah, um, yeah, really interesting. I think the last gig I went to see was probably Black Midi. Uh, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be at Brood and L, but the demand was so high that they upgraded it to the Irish Centre of Leeds Road. Wow. Okay. It was incredible. Yeah. 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 Um, also, yes, yeah, so we, we, sat, we sat here in, in the Cellar of Dreams, um, your own studio. How did you put together your own studio and what advice would you give to somebody that wanted to do the same? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Right, well, the studio kind of came together here as a, a you know, um, a, a necessity, really. The studio Patch Bay, which I mentioned earlier, had uh, was going bust. Um, and as luck would have it, Poppy Factory, the band I was in, had just signed a record deal and a publishing deal. So there was a bit of money floating around. And Paul and I, my partner, we'd just moved into a Victorian terraced house, which um, has a big cellar. So this is like half of the cellar. And then over there, through the glass, there is a, there's a drum room. It's not a huge drum room, but we found a way to kind of like get as every variety of drum sound that, that we want in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the big job started. We got friends who were builders and they came in and did the soundproofing because trust me, if you live in a Victorian terraced house, you don't want uh, guitar amps and drum kits blaring unless you want the police knocking at the door. <laughs> so that was really the expensive bit was the soundproofing. Um and then that was my baptism of fire. I had to learn how to pass audio through a mixing desk and into uh, a tape recorder. And when we bought that recording studio back in um, 1990, we got the mixing desk and the outboard and the microphones and the monitors and stuff like that. Uh, but there was no tape machine. Their 24-track, two-inch tape machine, was uh, it was a lease thing. So that oh, went okay. back to the company we were leasing it from. And we couldn't afford, I mean, like they were like five, six grand and okay. we, yeah, we didn't have that money. So bizarrely what we did was um, 
we got a cassette Porter Studio, which had got four tracks on a cassette. Uh-huh. And we, we had a sequencer running, um, it was like Steinberg, but it was a different type of thing. It was called Creator, made by C-Lab. Um, so what we would do is we would put time code onto track four of the cassette, which meant that the computer and the cassette machine would run perfectly together in sync. Okay. So that meant we had three audio tracks of tape, one for vocals, one for guitar, and one for whatever else, and everything else was programmed drums, programmed keyboards. We had banks and banks of keyboards just with MIDI leads running everywhere. Mm-hmm. And because this desk's got 20 input channels on the left-hand side, we just had uh, everything running live mm-hmm. uh, apart from the three audio tracks. So um, I would say to anybody who wants to, who wants to get into building their own studio, you should most certainly do it. Um, since the days that I'm talking about in in the early 90s, um, there's been a revolution. And I was reading an article about one of my favourite bands who were called Cloud Dead, who were like a San Francisco avant-garde hip-hop collective who were putting records out probably from 2000 to 2004. Uh, And the records sound incredible. And when you actually see the setup that they got, it was just running a little computer and a pair of NS10s and a distressor and a microphone and a drum machine mm-hmm. uh, and a head full of ideas. That's the thing, isn't it? The thing that makes a great record is always just some somebody's had a great idea mm-hmm. um, and that's what it's about. It's about capturing those things. So nowadays you can make a fantastic studio and make great sounding records um, for very little outlay mm-hmm. um, so long as you've got, you know, the... Uh, the tunes and the ideas of how you want to produce them. Yeah. And if you need to record drums and you don't have space to do that, then you come here and do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've I've done a few sessions where young producers have just wanted to come in and do their own drums. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry, do their drums here and then take it away and finish the record okay. in their own space. So I think, you know, the record industry is forever changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, long may that continue. And we just all adapt because if you know, for those of us who refuse to adapt, uh, the phone just stops ringing, and then yeah. you suddenly you found can't yourself... fight it, can you? No, no, we've just got to, we've got to go along with it. Yeah, um, well, that kind of leads me on to my next question, which is um, obviously you've witnessed the shift from music being almost exclusively recorded in studios to music production becoming very accessible through affordable gear and bedroom mm. studios. Um, what do you think are the pros and cons of this new landscape for both artists and producers? I, th- I think it's amazing. I think it's really liberating. Um, I love the fact that, you know, I mean, like, for instance, back in the uh, mid-90s, early noughties, when Embrace were making records, we would go down to Olympic Studios in London. It's a fantastic room. It's got a room where the ceiling is on is motorised, and you think, oh, well, we want the acoustic to be larger. Wow. The ceiling goes up, and it's like, oh, no, it sounds too big. The ceiling comes down. You just press a button I've on the wall. I've never heard of that. I think that's, that's <clears> It's insane. incredible. But the thing is, a studio like that was like 1200 a day, and then you've got your producer who wants £2,000 per song, and then he wants to bring his engineer, and the engineer wants to bring his programmer, and you've got five guys <laughs> in a band who are staying in a hotel for six weeks, and then we decide to bring in a fucking orchestra. Sorry, I don't know if I should swear on this. <laughs> it's fine. Um, you're bringing in a 40-piece orchestra to play on half the songs, and then the producer says, oh, what about a little bit of a gospel choir? (laughs) And before you know it, you've spent a quarter of a million pounds making a 10-song album. Yeah. 
Um, and we just can't work that way because, like, the music industry is not cut from the same cloth anymore. You know, to, to, to recoup that amount of money, you'd have to probably sell half a million records. Yeah. And that nowadays is virtually unheard of, whereas, you know, like, I don't know, in... in uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s, that was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's doable. You guys should probably shift half a million albums, you know, and on certain occasions, that's that's what Embrace did. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, you know, we've all, as the industry has changed in terms of the way that people consume music, so is the way that we as producers record music. So yeah. we're not spending a quarter of a million pounds making a record to then sell 10,000 copies. So... Um, um, it, you know, we just, we, ad- we adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was also going to ask you, uh, do you think that a college or university course is important in becoming a music producer today? Or do you think there's other avenues? <clears throat> it's a good question. And, you know, um, I see people who, you know, I've, I've worked with people, some of the bands that come in here, they've, they've gone and had like a three three-year Leeds College of Music experience. And you can tell that they've 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 learned a great deal. Um, it's up to them, really, to decide how necessary it is. I think I, what I would say to people is that, like, if you were going to be a record producer, you would be doing it. You wouldn't be waiting till the end of your three-year degree course to then think, right, now I've got my qualification, now I can start being a producer. You would be... Most likely, I'm not endorsing it, but you've been most likely skipping university and college mm-hmm. uh, because you, you, you're so locked onto a session trying to finish your, your record that you stayed up all night doing and all that. So, uh, yeah, if your passion is to be a record producer and make great records, um, just, you, you know, just do it. Mm-hmm. Just get on with it. And if you want to go to college to learn some of the technical do's and don'ts, Fantastic. Those are great skills to have, you know, to know how to record a drum kit uh, in phase, <laughs> to yeah. learn about phase <laughs> is hugely important. I would say <laughs> if there's anything I could tell you about to learn, having learned the hard way, is just like understand how to use multiple microphones in a in a setup, such as recording a drum kit, mm-hmm. where you might have 12 microphones all working together. Know, understand how to get those microphones working in harmony together with phase, mm-hmm. uh, and you will be have you will be making better sounding records. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I think um, yeah, those that those that are going to do it will be doing it probably you know before they've even got to college and long after they've left. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what you say is kind of you could use a you could use education to to feed your passion and and get get some kind of some, some more experience but don't use it as an excuse yeah not to absolutely just get on with it. yeah absolutely uh-huh. i think you know there is a lot of technical stuff that you know people with more knowledge i i love being taught things i had, I had a band use my studio a number of years ago they, they their studio where they where they all worked as producers and engineers was busy and they'd heard about myspace so they sorry not myspace <laughs> they'd heard about my studio space so they'd uh, <laughs> they'd come in here to record drums um, and I found it truly fascinating because they were all properly trained producer engineers and one of them got in the car and came back with more microphones and a better sounding snare drum and then I watched them check all the microphone placement in a meticulous way and at the end of it I said to him like I've never heard the drums in my own studio sound so incredible mm-hmm. and he said right well I'll come back tomorrow and I'll show you exactly what I did and, uh, and and yeah, uh, that was Jacob Kaur, who is a brilliant engineer, 
great producer and, and we're good friends and he's the sort of guy I can ring up and, uh, you know, sometimes you're working on a track and you get stuck. You're so yeah. close to it, you can't actually hear what's wrong with it anymore. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys where I can just send him something and he will... Uh, He'll bail me out. He'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you've come at that from a strange kind of angle, you know, like mm-hmm. pull the drums down and put them up again, you know, with different different effects or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's good, really good. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give to somebody that was pers- wanting to pursue a career in, in music production today? Um, I would say, depending on, on the... Because I, I predominantly work in with bands in more of a sort of rock, indie kind of field so i would say if i if i was starting out now um i'd be probably going to some of the more established studios in the area west Mm -hmm. yorkshire yeah leeds has got some great studios and i'd be asking to sort of like be assistant so you get some experience of being a fly on the wall in the studio offer to go in and make tea um become friends with a couple of the engineers there and just kind of be that guy who is dependable you know, mm-hmm. I needed to go and move that microphone. I needed to go and set that up in the other room. Um, you know, and invariably it will mean I needed to go and get me a sandwich and all that. But this is they're all these things are all vital to the smooth running of a session. You know, uh, moving a microphone is no more important than making sure the producer's got a sandwich someday. So <laughs> I would do that. And also, then when you've got a little bit of experience under your belt of like you know what being a producer is. Um, Go and go and talk to some of the bands that you really admire in the area. Go and talk to some of the local bands and say, "Look, I'm starting out as a producer. I would love to, you know, to to make a record with you mm-hmm. if you'd be up for doing that." Um, and I, I, I think very many bands in the area would be would be more than up for that as well. Yeah. Um, and just treat it all as like a big experiment. You know, it's a big learning curve. Your first few records are they might not turn out sounding the way that you want, but you just put it all down to. It's, it's all just part of the big journey, you know. Yeah. I, I don't love every record I've made. It, it, it kills me that I don't because I care so much about every one of them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're not we're not robots. Some days we'll surprise ourselves. Some days we'll disappoint ourselves. But mm-hmm. um, go forth yeah. <laughs> with an SM58 and <laughs> record something. <laughs> yeah, and I guess you're learning all the time as well. So, you know, the, the records that you made when you had less experience, you're always going to like them less than the more recent stuff. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? But sometimes you can catch yourself out and listen to one of the earliest things you did and think, oh, my God, there's such a freshness really? and a naive, beautiful kind of charm about it. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. full of flaws, and yet there's such an inherent kind of, you know, that I think sometimes having a little knowledge, there's, there's, a, there's a thing that Danny from Embrace, a singer in the band Embrace, he only knows about four chords on his acoustic guitar. Okay. And we used to take the piss out of him for that. Mm-hmm. And then Danny's vibe was just like, if I start learning all the chords, then I might just kind of know too much. And then my songwriting might become too... Because it's very... It's three chords and the truth, you know. Yeah, it's that yeah. kind of thing, you know. Like, tell me something that's emotionally resonant. And to do that... You only need three or four chords and the truth, don't you? Mm-hmm. You start learning all the major sevenths and all that. And then uh, I, I'm not saying there's an excuse for being a Luddite at all and sort of like, well, I shouldn't learn too much because it'll spoil my art. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something about a naive approach 
you know um yeah that's a really interesting idea i never thought about it yeah like that, it's, a, it's a it's a tight rope that we walk isn't it yeah yeah i think you can learn to do the technical things and then for a, for a, when the when the right job comes along you can choose not to yeah not to you could just go right well we're not doing that today it's three mics on the kit and um there's no overdubs mm-hmm. um and just Get a great performance and done. You know, we'll make a record, and three hours later it'll be it'll be finished. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you could spend three weeks putting strings and <laughs> quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I also want to talk about um, Spotify. Uh, really. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, me and Spotify have got like a hate hate kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they don't give a flying whatever about what I think. <laughs> But I, I see it as a very negative force within the music industry, not because of how they supply music to the masses. I mean, I think from a from a consumer point of view of being able to pay £10 a month and have access to just about every piece of music that's ever been recorded in the history of time uh, on your phone <laughs> anywhere mm-hmm. in the world is, is incredible. Um, but what Spotify forgot to do was make sure that the creators of the work, i.e. you uh, and you and I, mm-hmm. uh, who put our heart and soul and passion and our savings, mm-hmm. you know, we save our money to book some studio time or whatever, and we, you know, we care about it and we get it right. Um, and that's that could be you and I, or it could be Tom York, you know, like people at all different levels in, in their career mm-hmm. are putting their music on Spotify and getting absolutely nothing back in terms of uh, remuneration. Now, Spotify used to use the excuse, well, this is a brand new platform and it's going to take a long while before, you know, everybody starts getting paid. Mm. But then last year was like a big turning point for me and caused me to kind of uh, cancel my Spotify subscription because we had Daniel Eck, I think he's called, uh, who is the CEO of Spotify, who uh, is worth $4.5 billion dollars uh, and he had come forth and said that he thought that, you know, artists who were like like Embrace are, for instance, where we uh, have some downtime and write songs, then we get together and make an album, and then we'll record the album, release the album, do a tour, and then have a little bit of time off and then do all that again. And that tends to be a sort of, for a lot of bands, that's a three-year cycle. Now, Mr. Spotify CEO was saying, well, this is a ridiculously outdated model now, and what you should be doing is like just churning out music on my platform, and then when you're not busy churning out music, you should be uh, busy on your social media, uh, engaging your fan base and telling them about your story. Well... Sorry, love, but that it really doesn't work unless you just want to churn out anodyne, trivial pop for uh-huh. uh, 12 times a year and completely alienate your friends and fans on Facebook by just droning on when, you know, to have a story, you have to live a life. And to live a life, you can't spend all of your time satisfying Mr. Daniel Eck with just like, you know, <laughs> churning out pop ditties Uh (laughs) so it doesn't work now i think the most healthy thing that could happen uh, in view of the fact that the record companies have been dragged into the parliament have interrogated the record companies because it's not just spotify who are the uh the the sort of uh the naughty people in this arrangement the record labels got into bed with spotify um so the labels are actually getting paid a decent amount of money 
for music that is streamed on Spotify, but the labels are not passing that on to their artists. Mm-hmm. Hence, you have got Lady Gaga, who famously had well over a million streams on Spotify for one of her songs, and she got a check for one hundred and fifty dollars. Wow! Now, so that's going to put that's going to that's two grocery shops if you convert that to sterling, and you're like a, a family of two. You probably spend like seventy pounds a week at the supermarket. Wow! So uh, that doesn't that doesn't stack up. Um, so the record companies have been um, have been grilled, and and as usual, like when they refused to pay Prince and George Michael, when when George Michael and Prince went to court to try and battle with the record companies to say, look, I signed a deal with you, I made countless albums that all went, you know, we sold millions of records. I have paid you all that money back so many times over, I would now like to own my albums because Mm -hmm. I paid for the recordings of those albums and I would like to now license them to another label. And it got thrown out of court. Sorry, those are not the terms of your recording contract. Well, the terms of those recording contracts were invented by a bunch of crooks in the 1950s and it's time that it all moved forward. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm waffling a bit as I tend to do when I get onto the subject (laughs) of Spotify. (laughs) So I think the healthiest thing that we could possibly do as, as a massive community of artists is take our music from Spotify because they've had an opportunity to right the wrongs and to pay people um, a, a fair and just amount for the work which, you know, it's the music which makes Spotify a wealthy company. And they don't pump any of that money back into the music industry. They don't sign bands. They don't do anything really other than just provide a shop window where we can all go and get our musical goods. And if we all stood together and made a stand and removed our music from Spotify, Spotify would be nothing more than an empty online shop window with a green logo. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a very powerful statement to make. And in the meantime, you know, we could use Tidal because Tidal is a much better uh, platform that pays a higher royalty rate. We could use Bandcamp, which is probably the best platform Mm -hmm. of them all because during this pandemic, um, Bandcamp have done so much to help uh, artists at all levels of their musical career um, and and not only that they've pumped lots and lots of money into helping all kinds of uh, good causes as well you yeah. know millions and millions and millions of dollars and pounds has been channeled into amazing areas that has allowed artists to um, to continue doing what they wish so um, there are good guys out there mm-hmm. but uh, generally they you know they're not they don't work at Spotify. <laughs> it's tough though, isn't it? Because uh, as an artist, you're kind of stuck in this in this place because um, that's where all the audience are now. They're on Spotify. Yeah, um, because but... it, it captured the consumer. Uh, and and like I said, you know, like it for as from a consumer's point of view, it's just like, well, why do I need to buy CDs, yeah. Mickey? Why do I need to buy vinyl? So well, you don't. You really don't. Mm-hmm. If, if you're happy to just what 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 the consumer needs to know is that they're ten pounds a month isn't really going to the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, the artists are getting, you know, like if I, I've, I've got various tunes on Spotify with bands that I've produced or, you know, bands that I've been in. And every time I have a stream on Spotify, uh, you know, we get 0.002 pence. Now, if you're a band with a manager who's on 20% of your income and you're a band with an accountant and you have to give 20% of your money to the tax man, you actually might as well just give it away. You say, like, <laughs> do you know what? Just have it. Have my 
have my soul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the ideal situation no, for, for people, is it? No, it's not, you know. And it probably never, there was probably never an ideal situation in the music industry. Okay, the, the record label model didn't work brilliantly either because very few bands actually got signed. So we go back to the 90s before the days of Spotify and the internet. Very few bands would get signed. And out of the bands that did get signed by labels, the statistics told us that back then, 19 out of 20 bands that got signed would fail. So you got a 5% success rate of bands getting signed and actually going on to be successful bands selling records and doing touring and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we're in a great position where you could come and make a record and if you wanted, 48 hours later, you could say, right, it's mixed, it's mastered, I've even shot a video and I can get it out without any gatekeepers or people interfering. I can just go directly from me to my fan base without any nonsense. I could put it on Bandcamp. Bandcamp will take their 10% for providing the facility and the, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then the rest of it is yours. Yeah. Um, so we are, there are many aspects to the music industry which are, which are really have been liberated. And we are hugely in control of our own destiny in a way that we never were before except for the streaming yeah. disaster <laughs> yeah although that, it sounds quite hopeful when you put it like that because i guess that final barrier is just removing those gatekeepers all we need is um some some hero company to come in and say i'm not interested in taking the money from the artist i'm just going to be a platform that's yeah. here to prov to provide people to um, with a platform to to get their creative stuff out there i think a lot of things have changed as well. I remember when sort of the, like, I remember a guy at a record company saying, you know, like, right, Embrace have just had their sort of third number one album. You're going to have a bit of downtime. And the guy at the label said to our manager, please tell the guys not to have too much downtime because a revolution is about to take place. And he was referring to YouTube okay. and social media. There was none of that when we made our fifth album. Yeah. You know, we're going back to 2004, 2005. This was all just like some kind of science fiction fantasy, <laughs> but he'd seen that he'd seen you know there's smoke up in the hills. There's something coming that's yeah. going to be uh, it's going to really change it all. Mm -hmm. And of course, we had we had a ridiculous amount of time off, um, mm -hmm. and when we came back, it was a whole other landscape of iTunes Music Store. <clears throat> now I remember we used to get our knickers in a twist about that as well because I you put your music on iTunes and iTunes take thirty five percent. They don't actually do anything other than allow you to put your music onto iTunes Music Store. Yeah. And for that, they will take 35%. And the record labels would take a lot of money, but they would manufacture and market records. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, they would say, what, the band want to do a tour of Germany? All right, well, we'll put some money into the pot for that because that will result in some additional record sales. Mm -hmm. The number of times the record label will go... There's 35 grand there. It's going to cost you a fortune to get over to Germany with your crew and live on a tour bus for six weeks. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's all changed. And I don't want to make it sound like it was all feels when I was a lad, but um, <laughs> it will never it will never go back to how it was. So we've just got to find ways. It's, it's just much tougher to make a living in the music industry, mm -hmm. um, especially in times of COVID where we can't, we can't actually play any concerts. Yeah. Um, and that was our way of kind of, you would book some shows and then sell some products, wouldn't you? Some CDs and vinyl. And yeah, do that we way. all relied on that, didn't we? Yeah. Just um, being able to make some money off live performance and merchandise. But yeah, yeah that was the only stream, really. That was. And, you know, Marsicans, who were a band I produced, and, and often 
Um, you know, they were a band who were signed to a, a small local indie label and they were playing sellout shows. But often it would be that thing at the end of the night that the the, the money that they took on the merch stall would be the money that would put fuel in the petrol tank, you know, get them to the next gig and yeah. and, and buy a bunch of sandwiches at the services. Yeah. Hand to mouth, really, you know, just living one day to the next. Mm. <clears throat> tough, tough industry. But, um, but yeah, so you've also got um, your own label that you created. Um yeah, the boy who left home to learn fear. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, okay. Well, we we kind of set that label up. It was kind of a one of those things, you know, the saying necessity is the mother of invention. So the, a band I was in at that time called Glass Mountain, um, we'd signed to a Leeds label called Hide and Seek, and that was everything was kind of going really, really well. But then Dan, who ran that label, had just decided that, you know, he got to a point in his life where his priorities were changing and he decided that he no he can really no longer run the label label and give it the sort of, you know, the attention that he thought it deserved. So we found ourselves without a label. And then my friend Ronan, who's in a band called Lilo from Leeds, um, they were also they didn't have they never had a label. And we were kind of just hanging out. Ronan came on tour with Embrace to sell the T-shirts and it was a day off and we were just sat in a pub having a natter. Uh, and, and, and I said, come on, Ronnie, you've got all these great songs, these demos, you're looking for a manager, What you, what's happening? Why, why haven't you got a label? <laughs> and he'd said, well, what about you? You're in a band, you haven't got a label. And sort of like just <laughs> staring into the distance through the window with a hangover <laughs> and a pint of Guinness in my hand. And, and as the words came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, no, what are you saying? I said to him, you know what we're going to have to do, Ronan? We're gonna to have to set up our own label. And Ronan's <laughs> face lit up with excitement, gleeful, uh-huh. naive joy. And I was just like, oh no, that's a terrible idea. Just what the world needs, another record label. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did it, and the, and really it was hugely uh, challenging and, and it's still running and it's good fun because I get so many bands coming through the studio and I'll say to them, this song's brilliant. When's it coming out? And mm-hmm. they're like, oh, we don't know how to do any of that. Why do you put a record out? Or they will know how to put it out, but they'll know, to, they'll know how to do it in the most basic sense of go to CD Baby, who are brilliant, by the way, or Ditto Music and just upload it to an aggravator and say the release date is the 5th of May and then send the £10 and then mm-hmm. it comes out. It's just like, well, releasing a record, there's a lot more to putting a record out. My theory, I stole this saying from a friend of mine uh, and it stuck with me. Uh, I was He'd worked with a band and I said, did that so-and-so, so-and-so record that you produced ever come out? And he said, well... It was more of a case of they let it escape than actually release it. <laughs> and I thought, what a brilliant way of putting it. And I thought, yeah, records should be released rather than just allowed to escape. So uh-huh. by that, I mean you need some kind of marketing plan. You need a press shot, a press release. And you just want to, you know, if you're really proud of it, you don't want to just, like, you know, bang it onto Spotify or whatever. Yeah, you kind of want to try and, you know, make people interested in, in the record that you've made. So, um so it, we set the record label up very much as a way of helping uh, various bands that come through the studio. It's just like, well, look, you know, we, we're kind of interested in setting up a little label to help some of the more, because uh, some of the bands, come, they know exactly what they're doing. Like Lucas Watt, for instance, he comes and makes records here and he knows exactly what he's doing in terms of putting it out. Mm-hmm. But also the great thing about the label is it just brought loads of people together. Like So Alex, for instance, who is the singer in the Magic Eye Pictures, who are a band from Leeds, yeah, yeah. he's a, just an amazing animator and he's got a mind that is almost exploding with just brilliant ideas. Mm-hmm. So, Didn't um, you put on a, a, like a 3D concert? Was that him that, that um, 
was involved with that. Was it a Salt Air Brewery? He he wasn't involved in that. Our relationship with Alex started a little bit after that. But yeah, we we did put on a, like a label night at Salt Air Brewery. Uh, and we decided that we would give every member of the audience a pair of 3D glasses when they came in. Um, and he, he, this this lad called Daniel, I can't remember his surname, but he was a Leeds College of Music person. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know Daniel. I don't know his last name, though. He'd, he'd just created all this amazing 3D art, um, and we had a big projector above the stage, so the bands were pretty much playing in darkness, but the back, back of the stage was lit with just all this mesmerising sort of 3D visual art. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, that, that's the thing that excites me about putting on label nights. It's like, well, anybody can put four bands on a bill and put it in a room and say, this is our label night. It's just like, yeah, but, like, how do we actually do something that's a little bit more, you know, off the beaten track and a bit more of a, a an event, really, you mm-hmm. know, kind of like a, a bit more of an arty kind of, you know... What's the word? Yeah, just a different mean. slant on it. Really. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really enjoyed the one at um, Brudenell Social Club as well. That was that was thank a you. Night. Yeah, well, you you were very helpful that night as well because you were sort of helping out on the merch stall. That mm-hmm. was great because that was like we with, with the label decided to put out a four track EP, uh, and four of the bands that we that, that we were working with, we we pressed a twelve inch vinyl on this ridiculously complex kind of. It was coloured vinyl, but it wasn't just one colour. It was like this big psychedelic kind of mishmash of... Uh, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Wall, actually. <laughs> it did turn out really good. And then, as usual, we got really kind of uh, over-ambitious with the, with the record sleeve. It was like, well, do you want the sleeve to be... Do you want it highly glossy or do you want it matte laminated? And we were like, well, <laughs> here's an idea. We want it to be both. We want an ultra matte record sleeve, but then we want a section of the sleeve to be like super, super high gloss. It's like a film negative. Yeah, it was yeah. a film negative. And the bit of the sleeve where there's the film negative, that was high gloss, like an actual film negative mm-hmm. is in real life. So, so yeah, it it's was brilliant. like that New Order kind of Blue Monday thing where it cost so much to make that they, they were losing money on every copy. It was just mad. It was like, oh my god, we're selling these at a tenner, and this they probably cost about ten pounds fifty to, <laughs> to make each one. But it was, you know, sometimes you've just got to kind of, you know, it, it was an artistic endeavour. Yeah, it's a real uh, piece of art that you made. There, thank you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we, I, I, I knew going into it that like running a label is a bit of a, it's a labour of love, and you know, anybody starting a record label to make money should have probably. Uh, you know, that stopped happening in the, in the 90s, I think. But it felt like something that it, it excited us. And mm-hmm. and it still does, you know, like, you know, when the next right record comes along, that's what we'll be putting out on the yeah. label. So uh, in yeah. the meantime, you know, I'll probably sell a few more of those and just recoup a little bit more of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, finally, um, what projects are you working on at the moment and what are your plans once lockdown is over? Yeah, great. Well, those are good questions as well. So, um I've just finished making the debut album with uh, Lilo because during lockdown, Lilo went into some huge songwriting overdrive, which which I thought was was brilliant because I personally had I I just I'd sit at the piano and just sort of find myself just lost. I, I didn't feel creative. I felt, to be honest, I went in a bit of a downward spiral. Found the whole lockdown thing very troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, all my work was cancelled. I was just worried about the future, not, not not just selfishly, but just like, you know, like, God, what's happening? You know, like, mm-hmm. is this the future of mankind, you know, like about to be eradicated? So, it's scary stuff, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I found myself a bit lost. Ronan, brilliantly, because he suddenly found himself with loads of free time, um, went into songwriting overdrive, 
And so we, as soon as we could get together, he would bring those songs over in demo form that he'd done in Logic Audio, and we would kind of pre-produce them, knock them into shape. I'd help him, you know, structure, could nip and a tuck. Is that the right key for your voice? Usual thing, tempo. <laughs> <laughs> but then we got into some more interesting stuff of layers and, you know, interesting ways to, you know, what if we present that song, this song in an entirely different way mm-hmm. uh, and go down a more electronic OP1 Bon Iver kind of uh, oh, vibe. So there's a couple of songs where we did that and then there's a big post-rock kind of Mogwai thing at the end. Um, so we've just finished recording that. We did that in January and then I was busy doing some Embrace stuff in February. First week of March, we mixed the entire album in four days, which was just like hugely... Uh, I, I don't normally work that quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the recordings were great because we'd done all the pre-production. I'm such a fan of pre-production. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember with Embrace, youth would like, come on, let's get in a practice room in London for a week. And I was like, kick the songs around. And it was like, oh, my God. It's like, But at the end of it, it's just like, right, so it's in a different key. It's got a different structure. It's a different tempo. All the instrumentation has changed. Mm-hmm. But um, you think, wow, that's that song's so much more robust now. You know, it's gone from a sleepy ballad to a big, pop anthem yeah you know? so um uh what have i got on next i've just finished doing a job for bradford city football club okay they got in touch with me and asked me if uh their their song you know every football club's got a song haven't they like mm-hmm. sheffield wednesday apparently it's hi-ho silver lining you know but uh jeff beck mm-hmm. bradford City's is john denver's uh, take me home country roads which is a beautiful country song and they changed it to take me home midland road because uh, that's where the football ground is. Mm-hmm. And they're having like a big uh, online advertising campaign to drive season ticket sales for next season. Yeah. Um, so they asked me to record uh, a very stripped back, piano-y, string-arranged kind of version of that, which yeah. uh, which I did last week, and that's turned out really good, and they're delighted with it. So That's quite an interesting oh, job, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't often do corporate jobs. Um People often say, "Oh, working with corporate clients, you know, because they're not they're not from a musical background. They'll give you a vague idea of what they want, and you'll deliver it, and then they'll tell you in vague terms what why it isn't right. But they can't tell, they can't really tell you specifically. They'll just say, "Can you make it more oblong?" <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Bradford City, I went down and had a meeting, and they were very specific about what they wanted, and they showed me a couple of examples of you know pieces of music that had the right feel. Uh, so it was actually, I took loads of notes and when I actually sat down at my keyboard with all my MIDI sort of orchestral libraries, it, it came together really, really quickly. Yeah. So that was that was really good fun and, and different. And then I've got a new project going on called Experiment 637 mm. and during lockdown, uh, well, we were kind of halfway through making an album and then lockdown came along and completely screwed my mind up about what we were doing with that project and... Uh, I, I just felt bereaved because I couldn't be getting on with it. Mm-hmm. I was really kind of screwed my, you know, just having real bad anxiety about it. But, um, yeah, we've we've finished eight songs and I'm really, really happy with how they're all doing. And, and the great thing is um, bands are now getting in touch and sort of saying, That's ah, good. we can start thinking about coming into your studio. So the diary's filling up and I've got a couple of interesting things lined up you know just uh, bands that i haven't worked with before um bands that i have worked with before but they want to come in and do 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 it on more of a kind of co-writing thing with me so so that's exciting because i get to kind of get my hands dirty with musical instruments rather than just uh putting microphones in position and stuff Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, it looks like there's there's there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, with the COVID thing, you know, festivals are being announced, bands are booking into the studio, um, and there's a couple of things that I've already recorded that you know are waiting in the wings to be released. Yeah, so. when you can maybe play them live and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, that'd be great. But yeah, that's that's everything. But thank you so much. For You're very very welcome. Time. No, it's yeah. been a great pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Declan. That's all we have time for today, but there will be a new episode released on the last day of the month, every month this year, so do look out for that. Also, you can follow us on our Instagram at Close to My Art Podcast, where you'll receive updates on future episodes and whatever else we've got going on at the time. So thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>